Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. From vaccines to tax to violence against women and artificial intelligence, OECD Podcast did not shy away from discussing the topics making headlines in our society today. I'm Robin Allison Davis, executive producer of OECD Podcasts. Today, we'll take a look back at some of our most fascinating podcasts of 2021 and then look to the future and what you can expect to hear from us in 2022. International tax and negotiations to fix century-old tax rules topped the OECD agenda in 2021. Rory Clark spoke to Grace Perez-Navarro, the Deputy Director of the OECD Center for Tax Policy and Administration in February to help answer these questions and how the OECD aims to make changes in the world of tax. Globalization has had many positive impacts on people, businesses, and economies around the world, but it has produced uh, some serious tax challenges. Many of the tax challenges arise from the simple fact that every country has the sovereign right to establish its own tax system as it sees fit. And so without some level of coordination among countries, this can produce gaps and mismatches between countries' different tax laws that enable multinationals to exploit those differences to artificially shift their profits to places with very low or no corporate income taxes. And so without some sort of coordination, you end up with this this system that provides, uh, in most cases, legal ways to uh, escape taxation. What are governments hoping to achieve from the talks which are ongoing now Is it more revenue, more fairness? Well, it's really both of those things. It is definitely about fairness. And it's also about revenues because countries do feel that they are losing revenues that they should rightfully be able to tax. We have developed a proposal which consists of two pillars, one uh, which creates a new nexus, as I just mentioned, and a new taxing right for the countries where these profits are being generated. And then we also have another pillar, which is basically a backstop to all of the other BEPS measures, which is to ensure that all multinationals pay an agreed minimum level of tax. And so We have done some simulations and have estimated that our proposal would increase global corporate income tax revenues by about 50 to 80 billion US dollars per year. So we're talking about around 4% of global corporate income tax revenues in total. Back to countries, one of the traditional fears governments have is that if you overtax firms, they may up and leave to another jurisdiction. Now, countries are on board with this, as you say, but are there any niggling fears? Well, different countries are in different positions, although I think the vast majority of uh, the inclusive framework members are interested in finding a global solution because while they, of course, are interested in ensuring that their tax system remains competitive and that they have an overall attractive business environment, which includes what the tax system is. At the same time, 
they need to collect revenues in order to finance essential public services like hospitals, roads, schools. Countries have come together in order to get global international rules of the game. By July 2021, 130 countries and jurisdictions did come together, reaching a historic agreement. Lawrence Spear spoke with Pascal Santamon, the director of the OECD Center for Tax Policy and Administration. First things first, congratulations. The tax deal announced in early July is a historic breakthrough. Indeed, that's historic. That's a very big deal. All the G20 finance ministers did celebrate a big achievement. It's a once-in-a-lifetime achievement where you have a change of the international tax framework. This new tax deal is not a technical deal. It's a highly political deal which will change people's lives. How so? By ensuring that the largest and most profitable companies in the world will pay more taxes where their clients are. It's a question of fairness. It's about the tech giants, but not only them, leaving more profits where their clients are, but also by ensuring that you have this minimum level of taxation, which will bring money. Under Pillar 1, The largest and most profitable companies in the world will leave more profit between 20 and 30% of their rent to the markets where they operate. Currently, these companies pay hardly anything where their clients are. Tomorrow, these countries will get much more. 100 billion of profit will be shifted from low tax jurisdictions or countries where these large tech giants and other largest companies are headquartered to where the clients are. That has been a claim for the past 10 years. You know, many countries have talked about GAFA taxes or digital service taxes, and they tried to take unilateral measures. Here, you have a multilaterally agreed solution, which will ensure the same outcome but in a peaceful manner, without any risk of trade war. And these 100 billion, at least $100 billion of profit will shift from a few countries to many more countries where the clients are. And about pillar two, the global minimum corporate tax um, at at least 15%, what, what's that gonna generate? The global minimum tax is going to generate significant money. $150 billion will be generated, which at the time of COVID and post-COVID are badly necessary. In October, the new tax deal was finalized, with 137 countries now on board to update international tax rules. 2022 will be a busy year, with countries aiming to update their domestic legislation, sign a multilateral convention, and start implementation in 2023. This year, we gave you in-depth coverage of artificial intelligence with a partnership of the OECD Global Parliamentary Network and the European Parliament's Panel for the Future of Science and Technology, also known as STOA. From regulation to innovation in ethics and international cooperation, we covered a range of topics on artificial intelligence. In episode two of this series, Karina Pizer tackled the possible AI pitfalls and the need for regulation, speaking with Andrea Renda, 
a senior research fellow and head of global governance, regulation, innovation, and the digital economy at the Center for European Policy Studies. AI applications can sort of compress things like um, freedom of expression. They can compress the rights to a good administration and good governance, the rule of law, the rights to move freely and assemble. Depending on how you use AI, you can really damage fundamental rights in various ways. And those aren't the only possible misuses of AI. Lena Galvez, a member of the European Parliament representing Spain, who serves as vice chair on the Committee of Industry, Research and Energy, Stoa member and rapporteur for the Employment Committee's opinion on ethical aspects of artificial intelligence, robotics, and related technologies, explains what's at stake when it comes to regulating AI, from ethical questions to the labor force. There are also risks related to the impact or possible impact of artificial intelligence in the world of work, and also in labor demand in general. It will finally decrease, we don't know yet, in other technological revolutions. At the long term, we have seen also the creation of new jobs, but in the short term, we have seen the destruction of many jobs. So we have to realize that it could have an impact on the overall labor demand and also in the way we work. So we really need to know much better in order to regulate better. Regulating AI is urgent, especially as technologies evolve so rapidly. But what role can government play when we're talking about a private industry that's surging ahead and continuing to innovate? How can we retain a sense of agency? Government has traditionally stayed away from digital technologies, especially in the internet age. For like three decades, we have let the internet flourish without interfering too much under the belief that this idea of the more anarchic, if you wish, permissionless innovation, as we call it, was a good thing and had no shortcomings. Well, while it was a good thing, we're now seeing the shortcomings. There's a lot of inequality, market concentration in, in this field, and a lot of the big tech giants that use AI are basically regulating the internet themselves because they have become so institutionalized and so embedded that it's very difficult for government to have a say on the, the rules of cyberspace because these big private giants dictate the rules through their own algorithms. Think about what happened on the 6th of January with the attack on Capitol Hill and how the governance of content and speech on the internet is completely privatized, right? Many, many countries have started to rediscover that the role of government in um, setting some rules or at least some boundaries for cyberspace. And today, I think everybody agrees. We have congressional hearings in the US, we have sanctions in Alibaba in China, and we have a lot of uh, new legislation being proposed at the EU level that does not try to sort of completely weaken cyberspace and its revolutionary potential, but at least give some direction on how digital technologies in general, but in particular the use of AI, can really contribute to prosperity in the medium term for our society. So one of the key roles of government is to ensure that the way in which AI is used is not only respectful of fundamental rights, but to the extent possible is also oriented towards the greater good, because this is what AI can do, and so this is what we should do with AI. I recommend listening to all three of the podcasts in the AI series. And there will be more to come on artificial intelligence in 2022. Understanding and preparing for the future of work continues to be an OECD priority. 
How well are we preparing young people for this? Are students learning everything they can to be ready, not only for their first jobs, but for their future jobs as well? We spoke with Anthony Mann, OECD Education Analyst, and with Lydia Logan, Vice President of Education and Workforce Development at IBM. Well, our work here in the OECD Career Readiness Team shows that many academic institutions, many secondary schools, have a lot more to do in supporting young people. And we've got lots and lots of data so we can really work out what makes a difference to young people, like um, whether they've had a conversation with the teacher about a job they're interested in, whether they've been to a workplace you know, on a visit, whether they have heard from people in work in the school. And the more they explore their potential futures, the better they do. And we see these relationships in terms of higher earnings, lower unemployment rates, greater job satisfaction. But it's not just that. It's also important that they have first-hand experience of the labour market, particularly if it's in an area where they're interested in following, because it allows them to confirm their thinking, to, um, to challenge assumptions, to make sure they're in the right place, to understand what they need to do. One of the most interesting things we've found is that the more they think about their futures, the more informed, the more mature, the more sophisticated their thinking is about how their education relates to a future, an imagined future in work, the better they do. And so, you know, career guidance has never been more important, never been more important to young people. Lydia Logan feels that guidance, tailored options, and workplace experiences are also important in higher education particularly as the profile of students around the world is changing. There's often a gap between the way that students learn and what they're learning and what's actually expected in a job. And I think that's where the confidence is lost of students feeling like traditional education is falling short. I think the other thing is flexibility. So today students move around, they learn online, they have opportunities to learn all kinds of places. And a lot of schools have made more opportunities to learn in different ways, but the majority of them are still full-time brick and mortar delivery. And that's just not how students want to live and learn these days. So we think of college students as young people who go through what in America would be high school, and then they go into college and they finish a four-year degree and they move on to work. But in a lot of places, that isn't really the profile of, of a college student. They may work for a little while, go to college, get an associate's degree, go back to work. People are in and out of work, in and out of learning, and their life situations are different. And we don't need a one-size-fits-all system. We need systems that accommodate people where they are so that they can be lifelong learners. We will continue to bring you more interviews on the future of work and especially what it means for young people in 2022. The COVID-19 pandemic is affecting lives worldwide, but not everyone is feeling the same level of effects. Karina Peiser discussed how women are experiencing the brunt of the effects of the pandemic with Diane Rodriguez-Franco, the Secretary of Women's Issues in Bogota, Colombia. Indeed, women have been the hardest hit by the pandemic. And also because, as in other countries, we're the frontline workers of the pandemic, right? Both in health, but also in the household. I usually like to ask people, imagine what this pandemic would have been like without women. In Bogota, 52% of the health sector is made up by women. But also imagine in the household, because 
women, we have been giving up our jobs also to take care of children at home, of the elderly, and employment also has been higher for women. At the worst point of the pandemic in Bogota, unemployment peaked to 22% for men and 26% for women, which is a huge gap. I hope that this pandemic helps us recognize the work of women and redistribute the work of women and reduce the amount of time women spend in all of this. So going back to basic income, it's still going on today. So Bogota has not backed down on that. Part of it is given by the city of Bogota, but also part of it, it is done in cooperation with the national government, right, as a joint strategy. And the main beneficiaries have been women. So at one point, and this percentage might have switched a little bit, perhaps even increased, but 62% of those basic transfers went to women. So we were just talking about how women are so overrepresented in frontline work, which is often mm -hmm. more precarious, more demanding, and not as well paid. But there are other areas where women are underrepresented in the labor force, notably in politics and decision-making roles. And Colombia actually has really made impressive strides mm. in improving women's representation, especially in senior-level business roles. According to the World Economic Forum, more than 50% of managerial positions in Colombia are held by women. That's parity. But I think it's interesting to see how that number changes quite drastically when it comes to female representation on boards of publicly listed companies. So it drops from over 50% in these managerial senior level business roles to just 13.5% in board roles. One way that countries and cities have worked to narrow that type of gap is by establishing quotas. Is that something that Bogota has, has worked with? And what is your view on that strategy? Beautiful. So indeed, your description is acute and perfect. Um, and that's indeed what happens. So given our first woman mayor, she's been trying to keep the balance in 50%. So Bogota, for instance, has 35 boards of the public sector. And of the ones that depend directly on the mayor, she's been appointing and trying to keep parity, so 50-50 at least, and trying to, you know, explain the discourse and why it's important and why women we should be in every decision-making space. And so that's the case of Bogota. It's been harder at the more local level, both in boards, but also in the more participatory representative organs, right? There, we haven't reached 50-50 parity at all. Has there been any pushback on this attempt to create gender parity? I know that in some settings and some circles, it can be better perceived than others. For me, it's still incredible that we need to explain it. So that's my dream. When will we stop needing to explain the why? But it has been harder. The pushback, going back to your culture of machismo. I think there's a lot of the culture of machismo ingrained and the fact that we've been used to seeing men in power, men making decisions. The mayor and I, we use an expression a lot, which is one of the things we need to do. And made, basically this, I think, wraps up everything we've been talking about since violence to care work to women in boards is we need to unlearn machismo because we usually talk about what we need to learn. Right. We need to learn more about this, learn more about this, learn more about diversity, learn more about a gender approach, learn more about how to take care of our planet and tackle the global climate crisis. Right. But what do we need to unlearn? And so we need to unlearn machismo. The COVID-19 pandemic has also deepened the divide in racial inequality 
from vaccine distribution disparity to unemployment. I spoke with Valerie Wilson, director of the Economic Policy Institute Program on Race, Ethnicity, and the Economy in the United States on how we can ensure that the COVID-19 recovery works for all. Last year, you presented your findings on the effect of COVID-19 on racial inequality in the workplace, education, health. What were your findings? We used that report to sort of summarize and bring together all of the ways that racial inequality play a role in our society. I think the most immediate impact that people were focused on was in employment because you know, the pandemic triggered a recession. And so there were you know, tens of millions of people who lost their jobs here in the United States. But there were two other groups of workers as well that quickly emerged in that time. The second group included those essential workers, disproportionately people of color and women of color in particular, who maintained employment. So, you know, being an essential worker provided some degree of job security, but then by virtue of the fact that many of those jobs had to be performed in person, exposed those people to greater health risks associated with COVID-19. And then there was a third group of workers who were able to continue working from home. And so they maintained job security as well as were able to protect their health because they were able to or sheltered in homes and not required to go out in public to do their jobs. So Black, Native American, Latinx, uh, low-wage workers were the least likely to be in that last group who could protect both their economic well-being and their health. And so we've seen the disproportionate rates of COVID mortality along racial lines. Those who did lose jobs and perhaps had lower incomes to begin with, were more likely to experience unemployment, had less savings, were placed in a particularly precarious position because they were not in a position to be able to sort of fill that gap in income with savings. There are differences in housing in terms of the density of that housing. So bringing everyone home, having folks together in a closed environment, particularly if those were households, that had essential workers or workers who had to go outside of the home to work, put some families' health at risk at the same time that they were trying to provide some economic stability. So there were a lot of different connections across various aspects of life that played a role here. And in general, what we saw was that the historical patterns of inequality that we've observed by race, ethnicity, and gender were just reproducing themselves throughout the pandemic because of the you know, very reasonable response <laughs> that we had to take to try to get things under control. But given those underlying structures, the impact of that, although it was a, a universal approach, had very different effects. People are wondering if there's vaccine equity, are the shots getting to the people that actually need them? How confident are you that people of color are going to get their shots? They're going to get not only their vaccines, but they're going to get all the kind of economic stimulus that they need for the COVID recovery. Well, you know, I'm not a health or a medical expert, but you know, my best guess on what I know just about racial inequality is that again, people who have wealth will use that to their advantage in any opportunity that they're able to do so. And so, you know, that alone starts to raise questions about equity in terms of availability and who's able to get access quicker. Uh, but there are also, you know, cultural 
uh, differences, again, related to history and distrust of sometimes the medical profession, distrust for government, even in terms of the safety of the vaccine and how you know people have issues with how quickly things came out. So I think there are a number of things that can play into whether or not distribution will be equitable. This year, we launched a new series, Truth Hurts, with the head of social policy division in the OECD's Employment, Labor, and Social Directorate, Monica Kaiser. The multi-episodic series aimed to help prevent violence against women, featuring experts and practitioners working with survivors of gender-based violence. In the first episode, Monica spoke with Charlotte Neer, Chief Executive Officer of Rygate and Banstead Women's Aid in the United Kingdom. Charlotte runs a shelter for survivors of domestic violence, and she campaigns for better policies to save women's lives. We've been hearing that the pandemic has made it so much more difficult and so much more dangerous for women who are locked up with the abusive husbands or partners and that much more help is needed. What has your experience been with your work in the refuge with COVID? It's been horrific and that's the only way I can sum it up. What we knew going into this lockdown was that it would be awful because we knew that women would be isolated with their abusers. We knew that we would see a surge in women needing refuge spaces. Unfortunately, there wasn't much action from central government. There was a bit of money, but not enough. And it wasn't really directed in the right places, in my opinion. So what we've seen as an organisation, RBWA, the, the organisation that I run, we've seen an almost 150% increase in women seeking spaces. When the pandemic hit and when lockdowns hit, for every single refuge room that we had, we would have nine women trying to access that room. If you imagine for us, nine women trying to access one space, what is happening to those eight women that couldn't get a space? I've read a quote from you explaining how important it is also that local governments work together and that you create safety spaces across different uh, municipalities or local government uh, zones because the women often have to leave the immediate environment where they live because it's simply too dangerous to keep them close to the perpetrators. Women that come to us have to come from a long way away because if they were to stay in their local area, they might bump into the perpetrator, they might bump into someone he knows or a member of their family. But this creates a problem in countries where you've got a central government, but they've devolved all of their funding to local government. So the problem created is that, say, a refuge like us is taking women from all different local areas across the country. Then what happens is the local government where we are says, well, why should we support these women? They're not our local residents. This is a really interesting point you're making, Charlotte, because it shows that it's not always only about money. Of course, money is important, but it's also about the way it's organized, it's allocated, and how these services can work across borders and coordinate to make sure that the women end up in the safest possible place together with their children and that these places are always there for need. Central government devolving 
responsibility to local government does work well in a lot of ways, but in this case, it doesn't work well. So you need a legal mechanism to force really local governments to fund services that are for people that need them that come from outside their area. I hope you've enjoyed this look back on our podcast in 2021. Next year, we will bring you more insightful conversations with policymakers, experts, and changemakers on a variety of topics such as COVID recovery, climate change, artificial intelligence, and more. Thank you for listening. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and soundcloud.com slash OECD.